So Mark chapter 13 then, beginning at verse 1. And as he, Jesus, went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not one be left there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed lest any man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. And when ye shall hear of wars and rumours of wars, be not troubled, for such things must need be. But the end shall not be yet. For nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be earthquakes in diverse places, and there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what you shall speak, neither do you premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye. For it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son, And the children shall rise up against their parents, and shall cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men, for my name's sake. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. But when ye shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand, then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains, And let him that is on the housetop not go down into the house, neither enter therein, to take anything out of his house. And let him that is in the field not turn back again, for to take up his garment. But woe to them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. And pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, for in those days shall be affliction, such as was not from the beginning of the creation which God created unto this time, neither shall be. And except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened the days. And then, if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or lo, he is there, believe him not. For false Christs and false prophets shall rise, and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. But take ye heed, behold, I have foretold you all things. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars of heaven shall fall and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then shall he send his angels and shall gather together his elect from the four winds from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. Now, learn a parable of the fig tree When her branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is near. So ye, in like manner, when ye shall see these things come to pass, know that it is nigh even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, that this generation shall not pass, till all these things be done. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house, and gave authority to his servants, and to every man his work, and commended the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even, at, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. So, 
the end of the world. In one sense, anyway. This chapter is quite unique uh, in Mark's Gospel. It's made up of... Um, it's entirely a single uh, monologue by Jesus. Uh, the largest one actually ever recorded. Um, Jesus has um, gone... Uh, from the temple, he's gone up to the Mount of Olives, which is which is next to it, and he sat down on the slope there. And be, because he was sitting there looking over the city, over the temple, uh, it's sometimes called the Olivet Discourse. It's also known by another name, uh, less well known, the Little Apocalypse. The Little Apocalypse. Maybe it reminded you a little bit of of. The book of the apocalypse, the revelation. So re reading that again, maybe earlier this morning or now, or even in the past when you've not undoubtedly read it, maybe many times, it will have left you with some sort of impression of what the teaching's about. Everyone's agreed it's about something serious that's going to happen at some point in the future. <clears throat> You may think it sounds like it's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem or to the second coming of Jesus. Different views. Now, it's not it's not a short chapter and it contains tons of material. I could spend six months or a year going through this single chapter bit by bit. But as I said last time, I want us to keep a certain momentum going as we work our way through the book so we get an... We get this overview of it. Well, another reason for dealing with <clears throat> this in one go and, you know, not giving it really a lot of attention is that it's complex and it's one of the most keenly debated uh, sections in Mark's Gospel. It ties in with prophetic books like Daniel and Revelation. And so there's the potential to get bogged down just trying to tie everything together it's almost impossible not not to go off on tangents and the truth the truth is there's no single interpretation of this passage that is without difficulty my job today is to present to you what i believe is the best interpretation <clears throat> well when when we talk about prophecy from the bible down the centuries there has emerged a number of different positions among Bible students and so briefly then we have those who believe all the prophecy of the Bible was fulfilled in the first century AD. Some believe prophecy was partly fulfilled back then and will be entirely fulfilled when Jesus returns and others believe prophecies refer to events spread throughout history. Uh, and yet others believe that all prophecy is to be fulfilled in just a few short years at the end of the world. I remember the the preacher, theologian, uh, R.C. Sproul, he, he passed away now, but I remember him saying that he'd held almost all these different positions at different stages in his life. And that was a welcome admission f for me because I too have had uh, a number of different views and it's fair to say that my understanding is still evolving. So the view that these New Testament prophecies are all concerning events immediately prior to Jesus' return is sometimes called futurism. Now even if you've never heard that term you'll be aware of some of their beliefs. When you see Hollywood films about the, the you know, the end time Antichrist, uh, you see Arm the Battle of Armageddon or the Rapture of the Saints, uh, you know, uh, all of a sudden, you know, all that stuff, uh, that's all based on futurism. Well, from my perspective, I mean, I'm no expert, but I've been looking at this for on and off for, for decades that view, which is very popular, is the least satisfactory. It fails to accept the heavy use of symbolism in books like Revelation. And 
you, you might think that all this rapture business and the Armageddon stuff and the Israel stuff, you might think that's been around forever, and it hasn't. It's, uh, it began in the 1820s, so very recently. It was uh, Edward Irving, he was a, a Scottish uh, clergyman. It was then promoted by John Nelson Darby. He was from that sect called the, the Plymouth Brethren. And then Darby had a special success in, in, when he went to America. And today, his, his, his teachings called dispensationalism is widespread. And to make matters worse, that teaching has made its way back over the Atlantic and, and has influenced the British church. Now, of course, we have uh, a spirit of real charity towards people who we disagree with. Uh, on on these matters of prophecy, absolutely. But still, some are just, some are pretty, some views are pretty dire. <laughs> but the difficult, the problem with Mark thirteen is this: um, we, you, you may have spotted, maybe um, you may have identified related chunks that seem to go together. And so, the first section, I think most people agree that that's about. The invasion and destruction of Jerusalem. But by the time we get to verse uh, 24, we um, we meet with their disagreement then about <clears throat> whether Jesus is still talking about the destruction of Jerusalem or he's talking about an end time return, you know, when he raises the dead and so on. Now, it's important we understand, you know, we're reading a first-century book with 21st-century vision, and those first-century hearers did have an advantage over us, at least in this respect. Um, and one of the principles I fought to get across in my preaching is about this dramatic language the Bible uses sometimes, the tendency with modern readers is to see things more literally. Now, when, when I preached through the book of Revelation, I, I had to assume that the folks had previously been influenced by that literal viewpoint because it, it's, it's very common. And I encouraged people to put aside what they'd learned previously in order to take a brand new, fresh look at these types of scriptures. Well, okay, well, the single most important verse in understanding this passage is verse 30. It's crucial. Jesus tells his followers that some of them will get to see all these things take place. So if you believe any of this chapter is to do with the distant future, you have a problem. And theologians, of course, have tried to interpret what Jesus said you know, to, in, a, in some different way to get around this. But none of their efforts are persuasive. I believe Jesus meant what it looks like he meant. Everything in this chapter was to be fulfilled in the first century. The historian, you may have heard of Eusebius. Well, he wrote about his amazement when he saw Jesus' predictions unfolding in the approach to, uh, as, as it approached AD 70. And he asks the question, how can one fail to acknowledge and wonder at the truly divine and extraordinary foreknowledge and prediction of our Saviour? Well, in, in when we went through Revelation, we observed a recurring theme. Sin was followed by God's judgment, but the Lord's people were ultimately delivered from trouble. And this scene, this theme, sorry, is... Um, is also seen through the Old Testament. And so it's no surprise that we, we, we see it here. Well, I finished this lo rather large introduction and I intend to treat this chapter in, in two ways. Uh, firstly, I want to show why an early fulfillment of these prophecies is to be preferred. And secondly, I want to comment on the pastoral elements of what Jesus said. His warnings and encouragements given to the disciples are usually overshadowed by the exciting language of prophecy. 
So then, we'll begin with part one. Part one is all about the prophetic aspects of this chapter. Now, I want to go fairly quickly through the first 23 verses because the things mentioned there, it's, it's, um, it's quite easy to show that they refer to the destruction of Jerusalem. It's a little bit harder with the verses following that. So we will... Well, the first element we come to is in verse 6. And it's about false messiahs. Now, prior to the Jewish revolt in uh, AD 66, um, a number of fake messiahs arose. One of them was called Thuzus. And he, he even gets a mention in the book of Acts. You can maybe look that up later. He claimed to do miraculous signs um, he claimed to be able to part the Jordan River. Um, another guy was an Egyptian. He was a magician. And those two alone, each of them, uh, were able to generate uh, significant followings among the people. In verse 7, Jesus talks about wars. If you, if you read this and wondered what was so unusual about there being wars, you'd be right. War is an ever-present evil in our world. When the disciples heard of a war which particularly troubled them, they were to understand this, that, you know, war is normal. They weren't to think the end is upon them. In verse 8, Jesus mentions earthquakes. This is another phenomenon which has always happened and always will happen. Now, you may have heard the futurists claim that there's been a recent upsurge in earthquake activity and then they use this to persuade us their great tribulation is coming, their time of great trouble. There are two things we need to bear in mind. Firstly, there's no proper evidence of an overall increase in frequency of earthquakes. I mean, it's, it's, it's impossible to, to say that. But more importantly, the Bible doesn't even mention an increase in their frequency if you read it, does he? Jesus doesn't say they become more frequent. Jesus simply says there will be earthquakes. And of course we have records showing earthquakes at that time, in the first century, such as the one which uh, flattened Pompeii in AD 63. Well also in uh, verse uh, 8 we see about famines uh, and these are also recorded for us. You can read about one of them in in the 11th chapter of Acts uh, it took place under the reign of uh, Claudius and then in verse 10 we've got talk of the, the spread of the gospel and here straight away we have an example of a verse that seems to be speaking about a worldwide mission but diligent students of the Bible will be well aware the word world has a variety of meanings. Sometimes it refers to the Roman world. In one of Paul's letters, he says this about evangelism, which had taken place to, to that point. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. Now, obviously, the gospel hadn't been taken to Argentina and Thailand and Alaska. He means the gospel had gone out throughout the Roman Empire, the known world, if you like. It even reached Western Europe, uh, possibly even Britain, certainly Spain. And all this took place before AD 70. In verse 14, we come across the abomination of desolation. Now, the word abomination, uh, I suppose we use it to, to talk about something detestable and that's 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 quite that's quite correct it's really to do with some sacred place being profaned uh, with 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 some idol or or a person even now that word it in the middle of the verse makes us think of an object so mm, why did they use the word it? Well, maybe I could paraphrase this as follows. 
when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where he does not belong now it's important to make that point because it directs us towards a person rather than you know maybe a statue are there any records of people profaning the temple in this period well, there are several. I mean, one of them was Eliezer. He was a revolutionary and he spilled human blood in the temple. So he's profaned it. The best candidate that, that I've come across seems to be Phanai, who was, he was illegitimately ordained as the high priest uh, not long before Roman was, before Rome overran the city. And of course, that was extremely, that was serious, you know, he he wasn't in the he wasn't uh, he just he wasn't in that family line he wasn't he wasn't uh, instituted into that office legitimately it was a it was a it was a sacrilege because it was it was God's temple and so um, although Jesus was in the process of you know dumping this temple and then and destroying it but still it was uh, it was significant and this was this was a sign you may have heard some people say that. When when the when Imperial Rome invaded and they came in, they they put their standards, you know those, yeah, like the flag things, uh, up in the temple, and and that was, you know, they were pagan, so that was the that was the abomination of desolation. Well, they they did do that, but that was after Jerusalem had been conquered. What we're looking for is an early sign so that people could get away. It's no use seeing a sign oh it's time to escape when your city's already overrun and you're, you're, you know you're in chains so and again you know the the the, the greek language there says he not it so it's it's a person not an object so when we go on to verse 19 it speaks of a time of trouble uh, if you've seen the word tribulation in the bible it's the same thing because um, because it says that this tribulation was unprecedented, it's led many to believe that it can only be the judgment at the end of time. But the Bible uses that sort of language elsewhere for local events. This language of exaggeration is used to highlight how momentous those events are. So... Having said that, this this uh, assault on Jerusalem was was serious. It was it was severe. I mean, the the historian I quote sometimes, Josephus, a Jewish historian, he um, he said that as Jews were trying to flee um, um, flee the city, many of them were caught by the soldiers, and he reckons as many as five hundred every day were being crucified outside the city walls just to try and demoralize the city's um, defenders um, I mean it, they crucified so many people apparently they, they ran out of wood they couldn't find any more <laughs> they couldn't find any more uh, trees to cut down there was that many crucifixions hundreds of thousands of people were killed of course when the city fell uh, Josephus says 1.1 million, but that's that's probably an exaggeration. But still, hundreds of thousands died, and he goes on to talk about cannibalism as well. The the cannibalism that took place. I mean, there's one story of uh, a woman who's uh, thinks she had her food stolen or something, and so she was starving, hungry, so she killed her baby and start and cooked it. And just to make that story even more macabre. Uh, some of the men, the defenders of the, of the city, uh, smelt the cooking and went to the house and demanded that she share the, this baby meat uh, with them. Pretty horrific what happened. You'll, you'll see in verse 18, Jesus expresses the hope that the flight from Jerusalem doesn't take place in the winter. It, it says winter, it could also mean the times of storms uh, and certainly storms cause such a flooding as to make escape really almost impossible 
Well, just to try and reinforce this was all about the destruction of Jerusalem, look again at verses 14 to 18. It's pretty obvious uh, what Jesus was referring to. He talks about the people of Judea. He mentions Jews who are keeping the Sabbath. I mean, no one on the planet keeps the Sabbath except a few Jews here and there. And uh, the the descriptions of the houses, obviously, they were they were first century houses, and it, it locates all this in his ta- in his day. And I found a, a warning. Uh, this I was reminded of this warning from the scriptures. This is uh, found in Luke chapter twenty three. This is at the end of Jesus' life. Jesus turning unto them and said. Um, daughters of Jerusalem weep not for me but weep for yourselves and for your children because he knew what was coming so verse 24 it's seen as a turning point and so from this point onwards some believe the end time is referenced well certainly the language is very powerful yeah uh, if, if, if readers aren't familiar enough with their Bibles they get the impression this potent language cannot possibly refer to a local event all those those years ago. But those who are more familiar with their Bibles will likely be aware that this sort of apocalyptic language is used right throughout Scripture for numerous other events. So let's start with verse 24, verse 24 and 25. You've got a darkened sun and moon, stars falling to earth. Um, now we know we know stars can't fall to earth, me, you know, but but um, that's um, it, it. May be that uh, when they saw when they saw maybe you know meteorites, fall, small meteorites uh, fall to earth, that that they they the ancients call them stars, maybe. But we know obviously that that the stars referenced back in in Genesis that God created. Those, those are most certainly not able to fall out the sky and, and hit us. <laughs> um, but the, the futurists, of course, they want to take this as literally as possible. And so they're looking for, you know, they're looking out for comets all the time and eclipses and all this. And is this a sign? It's because of their commitment to reading everything literally. Now, there's nothing more common in Scripture than for great commotions on earth to be represented by disturbances in the heavens and I'm going to give you some examples in the 13th chapter of Isaiah the fall of Babylon is represented by the heavenly bodies being darkened in Ezekiel 32 the destruction of Egypt is pictured as the heavens being covered the sun being clouded over in Amos chapter 8 the Assyrian conquest of Israel is represented by the sun setting at midday, bringing uh, darkness over the land. In Daniel's 8th chapter, the oppression of the Jews by Antiochus Epiphanes uh, is symbolised by <coughs> um, stars falling to the earth again. And in the second chapter of Joel, a more well-known one perhaps, this present destruction of the of the the temple of Jerusalem is pictured as wonders in the heavens and the earth and includes a dark sun and a blood red moon and interestingly in the book of acts we hear peter describe the events that were unfolding right then as a fulfillment as the fulfillment of joel's prophecy he says but this he was talking about Pentecost is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel and it shall come to pass in the last days saith the Lord I will pour out my spirit and further on it says and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapours of smoke the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come when we see pictures like stars falling from heaven we're to understand them as referring to complete reversals in the power structures on earth now with all the changes that we see in history people live and they die buildings come and they go 
empires rise and fall. And so the earth, moon and stars are sometimes used in scripture as, as examples of things that examples of um, things that last. It, they, they symbolize continuity, stability. So when the Bible talks about those things being shaken or removed, something momentous is happening. The Apostle Paul was fully expecting the coming calamity to take place, uh, even maybe not in his lifetime, but very soon afterwards. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, But this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none, and they that weep as though they wept not, and they that rejoice as though they rejoice not, and they that buy as though they possessed not. And they that use this world as not abusing it. For the fashion of this world is passing away. The world as we know it is about to end, he's saying. Well, let's move on to verse uh, 26. The Son of Man coming in the clouds once again. A hasty reading in this verse without any background study will lead to a faulty interpretation. It seems clear what it means. Well, we'll see again how individual words can change the meaning of a verse. But we're going to um, we're going to look at a verse in Daniel. What Jesus said here is a loose reference to uh, a paraphrase, maybe if you like, from prophecy in Daniel chapter seven, where he says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, God, and they brought him near before him. You see, the Son of Man came, but he didn't come to earth. He came, or rather went, to God. The image was meant to conjure up the idea of you know a prince approaching the king and receiving all authority and power to rule and judge this is just a vision of course you know none of this happened it's just a picture when we come back to verse 26 Jesus uses the same word coming but that word can mean coming or going it's about moving from A to B and do you not think it makes sense to understand it in the same way as Daniel perceived it in his vision? Jesus coming in the clouds was never meant to be understood literally. In Isaiah, for example, the Lord is said to come, come to Egypt on a cloud, but it simply represented God's judgment on Egypt. No one saw him on a cloud in the sky coming down. The point is, if we allow scripture to interpret scripture, we don't have to be committed to reading verse 26 literally, as most do. Jesus did come in AD 70 in the same way as those other references are mentioned. He came in judgment. Did you notice the verse The verse it says, they, they shall see him rather than you. He's speaking of a particular group of people. We haven't reached it yet in Mark's gospel, but when Jesus is put on trial, he says the following to his wicked accusers. Jesus saying unto them, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Whatever Jesus meant, it, the witnesses to it are his enemies. And whatever that interaction was between the father and son at that momentous time, God's enemies wouldn't see that, but they would see the result of it. The destruction of their beloved temple, the centre of the universe in their view. He told them at his trial he'd come in power and they'd see it, and that's exactly what happened. Have a look at verse 27 now. Verse 27. I don't think we appreciate, you know, the, the difficulties Bible translators have. 
Some Christians think Bible translation is sort of an exact science. And, you know, you have faithful people who translate it faithfully. And then, you know, um, evil people who deliberately translate it in a faulty way. That's just uh, silly, really. The translators come to a word, and it may be that the, they can translate it in a number of ways. And there's no one to tell them which which way to do it. So they have to make a judgment. They have to choose one. Not at random. They look at its use elsewhere in Scripture. They, they think about their, their theological position. Does that help them? And, and this is an example. They had to decide whether, verse 27, whether to translate the word as angels or messengers. Now, the same translators translated it messenger when it referred to John the Baptist. So they acknowledged that it can be can be translated messenger but so here it was no doubt their doctrinal position that led them to decide to 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 translate it as angels now a more satisfactory way of looking at it is that these angels are evangelists um i'd I'd suggest that the the letters to the uh, churches um in the book of revelation that uh, when they are addressed to angels the angels of the churches they're the pastors those who preach the gospel so I'm suggesting this is about evangelists to describe as messengers and I say that for the following reasons well for one um, we know from elsewhere in the scripture that this end time reaping uh, when the judgment comes it's the tares that are rooted up they're said to be rooted up and um, first and, and, and thrown thrown into the, the fire not the elect so it's the other way around um, the, the image we get the image we get here in Mark 13 is the sun remains in heaven but he sends these messengers while the ingathering goes on and remember that the Bible itself describes our coming together with Jesus as a type of gathering it says here in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. And let's just remind ourselves one more time that this ingathering with the angels, with the messengers, it would take place within the next few decades from when Jesus spoke. So overall we can identify three events here if you like. We've got the destruction of the temple. We've then got the vindication of Jesus Christ. And we've got an army of evangelists going out to the nations testifying about the Messiah. The very thing the religion of the temple was unwilling to do. Uh, let's have a look at verse uh, 31. Jesus talks about heaven coming to an end now it won't surprise you that i'm suggesting we read this in the same way we examined the disturbances in heaven and earth earlier and once again there's evidence within the scriptures themselves to show this language being used symbolically here's one from isaiah 34 and all the host of heaven shall be dissolved and the heavens shall be rolled together like a scroll and all their host stars shall fall down as the leaf falleth off from the vine and as a falling fig from the fig tree the heavens disintegrating surely this must refer to the end time no isaiah was prophesying about the coming desolation of edom that i preached on last year And that is by no means the only example. So if we take scripture as our guide, whenever we see a reference to the destruction of heaven and earth, our first thought should that it's about a, it's symbolizing a catastrophe. And it follows from that, that when we read of a new heavens and a new earth to replace it, this is the new age of the gospel, the one that begins when the old one ends. Now, I attempted to, I attempted to make this case when we came across this phrase at the end of Revelation, 
And I said then, at the end of Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth was symbolic, and they described the whole gospel age. Now, hopefully, maybe today, hearing all these other scriptures, you might be more convinced that that's the more reasonable position. Now, now, having said all that, obviously, we, we that doesn't take away from the fact that there is a uh, there is a future paradise uh, for us waiting. So. Um, elsewhere I thought this was interesting Jesus um, implies that the Mosaic law would be in effect until heaven and earth have passed away so what is that Mosaic law in in force throughout the world till Jesus returns at the judgment well think about it this way what Jesus says in Matthew 5 for verily I say unto you till heaven and earth pass one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law until all be fulfilled heaven and earth pass now if we understand the passing of heaven and earth as occurring in the first century it all makes sense Jesus obeyed the Mosaic law it was still in effect at that point not one jot or tittle would be taken from it. But with the destruction of the temple, the passing away of heaven and earth, if you like, the law came to an end because all was fulfilled. Now take uh, take note of this. Jesus said this time of great trouble would never be repeated in the future, never seen before, and it won't be seen after. So it can't refer that great tribulation can't refer to something at the very end because at the end there, there is no there is nothing after that it's just another reason to to really to um, in charity reject the futurist view I keep saying the events at AD 60 and, every, and all those things leading up to it were of cataclysmic proportions. It's near impossible for us to understand the significance of it as the first century Jews did. History as they knew it was coming to an end and the age of the Messiah was to begin. This Jewish community, you know, in uh, Galilee and Judea, they were supposed to be favoured by God because um, when when um, when Jerusalem was overthrown in the 6th century BC so 6th century 5 and a half centuries previous God allowed a remnant to return to the region but their favoured status obviously led them to be overconfident and part of that confidence was it was all tied up with these grand buildings they just thought it would be like this forever well I've laid out a case then for these predictions having been fulfilled in the first century we've seen how the warnings were directed to the inhabitants of Jerusalem we've used scripture to interpret scripture in showing the dramatic language Jesus used was symbolic and again we remember how Jesus said some of his listeners there that day would survive to see all this take place. I want to mention some things now about these pastoral issues. I said at the start, the pastoral side of what Jesus said has been neglected. But I think we should view this whole chapter, you know, as being primarily pastoral. Jesus is more concerned with preparing his disciples for what was to come than, than anything else. It was about, about his kindness, his, his oversight, his pastoral care for them. You may not have noticed, but this whole discourse begins with Jesus saying, take heed. And the very last thing he says is, watch so um, let's read them you've got uh, verse 5 take heed verse 7 be ye not troubled verse 9 take heed verse 23 take ye heed 
verse 33 take ye heed verse 35 watch and verse 37 watch so the chapter's full of expressions of care for the disciples he wants them to keep their eyes open for the signs of the end but he doesn't want them to be overly worried an example is the advice he gives them should they end up in court you know many of his followers would be nervous most of us would about the prospect of giving a speech you know uh, taking the opportunity to testify in front of, of these all these people it would make them nervous and Jesus tells them the Holy Spirit will lead them when the time comes so they're not to worry they're not to you know stay up all night preparing a, a, a speech uh, and of course he also assures them in, in, in here this passage that those who persevere those who persevere in the faith will be saved well this talk Jesus had was it was primarily for them for those people the events he predicted were to take place in their time not ours they were to look for signs that a cataclysm was coming we're not but I'm also confident God expects we'll take things like this and apply them to our own situation the best we can so in the time that we have left uh, I want to look briefly um, at three warnings Jesus gave and perhaps see if we can learn something from them well firstly then we have a uh, false Christs and we read about this in verse 6 and also in verses 21 21 and 22 pretenders would show up claiming to be the Messiah uh, some would do this to lead people into joining them you know in their defense of Jerusalem against the invaders now those latter two verses they show us something uh, interesting they, these um, these charlatans would gain uh, support and I don't know whether the things they were doing were, were genuine, you know, genuine miracles or it was just smoke and mirrors, you know, tricks. But it, but it's still interesting to compare uh, the use of signs and wonders with the way um, here, with the way uh, Jesus used them. Now, he, he never employed miracles to show off or to force people into following him. You know, there was he, he met people's needs. In fact, on one occasion when he was... He, he was asked, he was specifically asked, show us a sign, prove who he was. I'm sick of hearing that of people. You know, if God would, if God would give me a, you know, prove himself that he exists, then I'd believe in him. You know, no. Uh, Jesus took offence at this request for the sign. He declined and he said, he said, the type of people who are asking for proof and signs are wicked people. Now, I'm, I'm trusting that no one gathered here today is in danger of following any false Christs as such, but a more real threat, perhaps, is the, is the um, false doctrine. Now, many Christians like to throw their weight around and accuse people left, right and centre of being heretics. They have some doctrine that they like. It's the one they want to talk about all the time. And they convince themselves that anyone who believes otherwise is a heretic <laughs> but here's an experiment imagine i asked each of you to make a list of 10 preachers who you trust uh, that you trust them that they preach the word of god faithfully well they wouldn't agree with each other on everything so let's assume that some of them have got it right a certain doctrine right and well the other ones who don't agree with them obviously are the technically holding to false doctrines and presumably teaching it as well now obviously i believe the doctrines i hold are biblical because i couldn't hold a doctrine and believe it if i didn't you know i wasn't sure of it but but still it would be arrogant to think i've got everything right and it's things like prophecy i'm just not as sure as you know not as sure on I don't think it's anyone to, to 
don't think it's possible for anyone to be uh, completely confident. But does that mean then that because we all presumably hold to certain false doctrines that we should uh, steer clear of each other? Should all be like in just remain as individuals then? Well, that's stupid, isn't it? I think it's say you know safe to say every Christian who's ever lived has believed some things which are unbiblical. So the the warning for Jesus, the warning from Jesus for us, is to beware that doctrine which strikes at the heart of His person or undermines His work. So, for example. Uh, we should be wary if a professing if a professing believer, maybe even a preacher, uh, tells us that Jesus Christ was divine, but not really human. We should be on our guard if if one of them tries to persuade us we can be saved by putting our faith in someone other than Jesus. Now, deciding what constitutes the false doctrine Jesus talked about and what are just minor differences is, is it's not always easy we must determine though to always use the word of God to tell us what's of vital importance and what's not so false Christs then are false prophets there's also this issue of upheavals in the world because we read earlier about a time of great trouble coming in the first century and it culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple and as we saw it was preceded by trouble all over the place the disciples were told not to worry hopefully they had confidence God was they had enough confidence God was uh, sovereign over all them things and today we still have wars don't we we hear about massacres. I mean, I've stopped watching the news because they're just they're a bunch of liars, <laughs> put it bluntly. But I'm vaguely aware that, you know, there's still things like this going on. Governments get toppled. Tyrants arise. There's political shenanigans everywhere. We've now got looting and rioting in the United States. People may lose control. But God never does. He is sovereign. And when we think about that, alongside the knowledge that he loves us immensely, and he brings about everything for our good, there shouldn't be any anxiety within us. And if we can learn this well enough, we're then in a position to help others who do feel anxious. Maybe, maybe they've had a little drop in faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 Who comforteth us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the, by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. So one is comforted of God he's then enabled to comfort another. I'm sure you know I'm preaching I'm preaching to myself today more than I'm preaching to anyone else. I know God is on the throne as much as you do dare I say it, but I still allow myself to get worried about things happening in the world. I worry about the power that these tech giants like, you know, Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and all these others have to suppress free speech. I worry about the ease um, with which governments now can place their citizens effectively under house arrest for the good of their health and then I worry about the success of so-called progressives uh, they've had so many successes in, in their bullying of societies God is in control Paul God is in control the enemies of God will only go so far as God dictates Wicked people are only able to gain political power by the ordination of God. Everything which happens in this world, whether good or bad, is playing a tiny part in the overall purposes of God. So, we're to watch out for false Christs. We are to not be anxious about things going on in the world. And then there is the issue of hatred 
we read in our passage about persecution persecution of the disciples they were warned they were going to end up in court they were going to be assaulted possibly betrayed by their own families and generally just be hated but they're told to persevere after which they'd receive their eternal reward does anyone think that they're hated by all people all people of course not so i need to clarify this for one thing all men doesn't mean every individual without exception it can be but it may not be and so uh, the, for example the disciples uh, on on their evangelistic uh, journeys and missions they will have encountered people who they were able to uh, lead to christ they obviously didn't hate them so were to read it as they'd be hated by all kinds of men there wouldn't be a place a town a village that they evangelized where they'd avoid opposition uh, another thing to remember is since most of you I, i'm assuming it will not be involved in full-time evangelism well there's less potential obviously for, for you to suffer that sort of persecution but if you've been involved in any type of evangelism, and I expect every one of you have, you will have at least had a taste of the opposition. The, the hatred inside them. Our twins were recently posting uh, gospel tracts through people's doors uh, around where we live. And their young age, 16 didn't stop people coming out and throwing the tracks away in front of them to make a point i've seen people you know they they storm they pick the tract up in the hall they open the door and storm out and sometimes they'll open the bin put the tract in and slam the bin hoping that you'll see them just just so you'll know <laughs> how they're really knowledgeable because they know there's no god and uh, others others i've seen others tear, tear traps tracts up but just like when we considered upheaval in the world, we again we remind ourselves God's sovereign even over the opposition we face. He arranges those hostile encounters and he expects you to act in a Christ-like fashion. What that means is that we're to show kindness to the people who hate us. We pray for them. We pray that God would have mercy on them. We're not to be anxious. We watch out for false doctrine, but we don't worry about it. We pray for peace in this world, but we don't fret when it's not present. We receive opposition, but we comfort each other with the knowledge that this, like all things, is part of the grand and wise purposes of God. You know, one of the great one of the great benefits of understanding this chapter in the way I've presented it today is it's an antidote to all the hysteria and anxiety that futurism can generate. The great tribulation has passed. We're not forced to believe the world is in terminal decline. There's no discouragement thinking evangelism is becoming less and less effective. We can ignore those preachers uh, who tell us they have everything worked out and can predict when Jesus is coming back and it means we can expect Jesus at any time not yet but at any time there's no complicated sequence of events having to take place first we believe he could come today And you know what, folks, even if I'm deluded, even if I'm completely wrong in my interpretation, even if everything plays out according to how the futurists tell us, we are God's elect. We are his precious children. And that means he'll deliver us out of all troubles. I'm grateful for your patience today. I've spoken longer than usual. And even if I haven't uh, spoken entirely clearly, I hope there's been enough in the message to prompt you to think on these things and uh, delve into the scriptures 
more if you're watching and you're you're not there yet you're not in the kingdom you haven't placed all your whole self you haven't surrendered to Jesus Christ we obviously urge you to do that today you are you are unbelievably privileged friend because you are living in this marvellous new gospel age where the gospel has gone out to all corners of the world where we have lands overflowing with Bibles and books about the Bible you are privileged to hear this message today and God has done that but it means that you are going to be more accountable because if God has given you greater um, gifts if you like then much more will be expected of you you'll be expected to to trust in Christ and so this is what we, we 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 urge you to do today do what we did pray today that God will have mercy on you like he did on us and now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you who love God Amen Thank you folks, it's a late one today. If you've uh, joined us uh, after the event, uh, we thank you for joining with us and uh, we pray God will bless you likewise in the week ahead. Until next time folks, I shall see you.